Hi, I'm Elaine McCrimmon, Global Head of Reputation and External Engagement at ABM Bev, and you're listening to Talking on Tap. Welcome to our podcast. In this series, we're taking a look at the recovery. Over the past year, we've shown that we are resilient and agile and responded to the needs of our consumers, customers, and communities. In this episode, we're talking to Tony Milliken, our Chief Procurement, Sustainability and Circular Ventures Officer. Peter Lacey, the Chief Responsibility Officer and Global Sustainability Services Lead at Accenture. And then we'll be speaking to Greg Belt, the Chief Executive Officer and Founder of Evergreen. And in this episode, we're going to be speaking to our guests about greening the recovery, We'll be tapping into their expertise on circularity and the circular economy. Welcome to Talking on Tap. I am so pleased to introduce to you our Chief Procurement, Sustainability and Circular Ventures Officer, Tony Milliken. Tony, welcome to the show. Oh, it's great to be here, Elaine. You have such a large remit, but today let's focus on circularity. Can you explain why circularity is so important and why it's important to us at ABM Bev? Well, circularity has got so many definitions, so I'm going to try to kind of keep it a little smaller in definition, but let's just look at circularity in several lenses. So the first one would just be our waste, you know, from our post-brewing waste there's brewer spent grain and brewer spent yeast and there's some other things there called sludge but we look at that and then you can look at circularity a couple another lenses so you can look at it as our circularity on our returnable bottles i think we got the largest circular return system in the world about 40 percent of all our packages actually get returned and reused and then there's a whole another aspect of circularity that is about our recycle content So once our packages are used, post-consumer waste, then we have the opportunity to bring them back to life in a new can or a new bottle or a new plastic container also. So in all those aspects, you have circularity. Now, here's the most beautiful part is taking what we have in waste, and I'm talking about the post-brewing waste, is can we do something with it besides sell it to cattle farmers or pig farmers or chicken farmers and upscale that and I think that's where you're seeing us do some really, really cool things at ABMBEV, specifically around uh, a new company that we're developing called Evergrain. That takes our brewers' grains, and it takes the protein out of those spent grains, okay? And then we've figured out, just through simple, simple math, that we could feed 20 million people their protein requirements for a full year. So wow. that's, that's pretty cool, right? That is really cool. Yeah. Let me, let me, hey, Elaine, let me throw on a little one more. Most people don't know about it. There's a little company that we're developing with ZX called Phi. It's FY. But we're actually taking our brewer spent yeast. We're figuring out how to process that, upscale it to make a egg white analog. So think about that. You know, we're, we're basically taking our wow. yeast, which is for a vegan. You take that protein from there and you make an egg white analog. What's beautiful about it has the gelling set that an egg would have, has emulsification like an egg would. So all of a sudden now you can start making confectionery, you can do baking, you can do bread, you can do a lot of things that you can't do currently. You can now do in the future for the flexitarians and vegans. 
And I think it's a real, real, it's almost like the holy grail of changing that over. So I'm real happy about that business and the circularity built around brewer spent yeast. That is fantastic and really disruptive when you think about all of the work streams that you've got going on. And I'm excited as well that we're going to be having Greg Belt, the CEO of Evergreen, actually join us later on in this episode. So, um, so, so Elaine, she- Elaine, when you got Greg Belt, guess what? The protein he's working on in Evergreen is so special. It's water soluble. It's basically tasteless and odorless. And it's almost a full protein, not a a hundred percent full protein, but we can augment it to make it a full protein. It's really a game changer in the ingredients business. I can't wait. I really can't yeah. wait to deep dive into the evergreen business with Greg later on. So, how does sustainability and circularity fit into the recovery during the virus? You know, the COVID virus. I'd say focus and sustainability. You know, this pandemic is actually allowed people to really focus on what's important. And you think about it, I'm 60 years old, I got adult children, but I'm hoping I'll have grandchildren in the future. It's sustainability is about them. It's about their generation. It's about the next generation. And you'll hear me talk about 100 plus, hopefully later on in this podcast, but it's about the next 100 years. And I think while people have gone through this and they're challenging times of their life, they're starting to focus on not taking for granted this earth's capital. And what are we going to do about it? So I see sustainability really, really peaking. I really like where it's going. You're looking at governments around the world. You're looking at corporations around the world. You're actually looking at the individual consumer getting heavily involved. So right now, it's a good place to be. I really do like having sustainability part of my function. Absolutely. You do hear more and more about really greening the recovery. But let's uh, move on to that 100 plus accelerator because you've mentioned that. And really, I know you've got some big news and the listeners will be really intrigued about what you've got to share there. You know, I got to tell you, when I do retire, I'm going to look back and you kind of look back on your career and you say, what are the really cool things you've had to do? You know, impacts. And I got to tell you, this 100 plus sustainability accelerator that Ezgi Barcenas and Maisie Devine have put together is just amazing. And so let me just kind of explain it yeah. to you, Elaine. We were at Davos and during one of the conversations at Davos, the World Economic Forum basically came out and said that it was going to be 5 to $7 trillion to solve the world's SDG problems, you know, the sustainable goals. And so... I remember the three of us sitting down having a Budweiser and sitting there saying, what can we do to be involved in that? Because yeah. five to seven trillion dollars of investment to fix these problems, you want to be a part of that. And so during that conversation, the whole concept about crowdsourcing and the thought is very simple. The future's here somewhere in the world. We just got to go find it. And asking our 160,000 employees is one thing. But asking, you know, seven or eight eight billion people on Earth to actually think about these problems and, by the way, help us solve our challenges, that's crowdsourcing at its best. And so what Ezgi and Maisie did is they came up with 10 challenges. So you hear the 100 plus. Well, the 100 plus stands for a couple of things. 100 plus years from now, we want to be on this Earth and very healthy. I'm talking about future generations. And then the other part is, is we got 100 plus problems from a sustainability standpoint inside our own business. So how do you solve those? And so each year we decided we're going to come out with 10 new challenges, Elaine. So think about it, 10 new challenges. How do you reduce the carbon in your farm? How do you increase the percentage of cutlet in glass bottles? 
these are problems that we don't know how to solve. Yeah. But the interesting part is, is we put those 10 challenges out and Maisie got close to 700 startup proposals that came back in. And then, then by the way, I just want to let you know, this is kind of fun because people know me on this. I gave her a budget for 10, 10 startups she could put through an accelerator and she figured out how to do 21. So that just tells Amazing. you that how smart this young lady is, right? And then the beautiful part about it, our accelerator is, is that we give the accelerator money. We present money to help them get started. We provide them mentorship. We actually give them a pilot. Think about that, a pilot in one of our breweries or one of our operations around the world. And we test them out for six to nine months. Now, here's where it gets fun. In six to nine months, if they're successful, we write them a one-year contract up to a three-year contract. Now, if you're a startup and you have the ability now to do business with the largest brewer in the world, probably one of the top two or three CPGs in the world, and you get the opportunity to have a contract with us, your business is going to take off. And so I just want to kind of let you inside the tent on this. We've had 36 successfully go through. And of those, we've selected certain ones that we like to kind of promote further. Of those, they've gotten over $200 million in venture capital investments. Okay. Yeah, absolutely transformational for these businesses and life-changing, isn't it? But guess what? That was just the beginning. And then the dream was very simple. We didn't put anything on the 100 plus accelerator. What I mean by that is the branding didn't say Anheuser-Busch InBev. It didn't say anything. It just said the 100 plus sustainability accelerator. The reason we did that was this. We know we're a big company, but we can't solve these things by ourselves. Hence, we did the 100 plus accelerator. But now what happens if you bring on other CPGs that believe like-minded as us that we can't solve it ourselves? Why don't we collectively work together? And now the big announcement that came out just a couple of weeks ago is Coca-Cola, Unilever, and Colgate Palmolive have joined the 100 plus. So that small, what I call a small flywheel that we were starting to build on the accelerator now gets much bigger and much faster. Because now think about it, Coca-Cola, Unilever, Colgate Palmolive and ABM Bev all together, that's massive. That is massive. And what we can do then is make that flywheel go faster and offer many more. I forgot to tell you, Lane, the second year we did the 100 plus, Maisie got over 1,700 proposals from startups. So now you just saw one year to the second year, move from 700 to 1,700. Now you add four massive CPGs together. What do you think the number of really good proposals are going to come in? And then I forgot to tell you, one more thing to blow this thing out of the water is we're asking each one of our zones to do their own 100 plus accelerator. So we have Global that's run by Maisie. And then each one of the VPs of procurement and sustainability in each one of the zones is also running their own 100 plus. So now you take those 1,700 proposals, we pick, say, 20 at Global, we hand the other 1,700 and everybody gets to choose. Okay, so we'll make that spiral even faster and bigger. That's fantastic. So when I really think about us bringing people together for a better world, this is such an amazing example of really how we do that. And this is changing the world. It really is. It's fantastic vision from you and your team with Esgi and Maisie. It's really fantastic work. You said bringing people together, right, for a better world. Yeah. Um, I'm starting with 100 plus and better together us partnering with others to for a better world. So better together for a better world. 
And I think you're going to see that more and more around the 100 plus sustainability accelerator because we're looking. And by the way, another little book I'll throw in, I can't name them, but there's two other massive CPGs that have already written to me wanting to get on board. All right. Oh, wow. Well, so, after they listen to this podcast, I tell yeah. you, there's going to be more than two. They're going to be knocking at your door, Tony. <laughs> That's for sure. Who doesn't want to be involved in that 100 plus? I agree. No, it's a great accelerator, a great initiative. So, Tony, you're Chief Procurement Sustainability and Circular Ventures Officer. Mm-hmm. So, tell me more about how the procurement and the sustainability function come together and how you really lead that. Where did that come from? How yeah. does that work? Well, you, you know, this is where our CEO's brilliance comes into play. David Kamenetsky and Brito both came to me and said, hey, Tony, you know, procurement, you guys, you deal with $35 billion in purchases a year. And what you're doing, we believe, will work well in sustainability. And if you can bring the two together, we think we can grow this opportunity, which just put a, a huge smile on my face. Everybody in my organization knows that that was probably the happiest day I've been at ABM Bev is when Brito and, and David Kamenetsky brought that to me. Now, people will say, well, Tony, why are you so happy? Well, this is a perfect marriage for the procurement team because guess what? We spend all our time working with suppliers, okay? And a lot of the time we're working with suppliers, it's really tough. It's tough, tough discussions. But when you start asking the procurement people to now have a target on sustainability, it just brings an extra dimension to our job. So now when we're talking to our suppliers, it's not about price and it's not about supply security and making sure the quality is there. Now we're going to talk to them about another element, which is about sustainability. And it's how to actually bring in, say, a higher percentage of recycled can sheet or the percentage of cutlet going into a bottle or just different ways of bringing in sustainability around air, carbon, farming. All these aspects come together, which gives the procurement people a sense of impact and importance. Okay, And yeah. you get that big smile. I'm going to tell you right now, the day that it was announced that sustainability was coming to procurement, I had two things that happened. A, I brought Esgi Parsinus over, which was just a perfect situation for the right person to come across. The second part was is that I got more texts and emails in one day from my own team around the world, right? I mean, whether it was coming out of our back office in India, it coming out of our GPO office in Zug, or it was coming from our zones. The happiest I've ever seen in our organization. And by the way, engagement. Very, very high on engagement. So I couldn't be happier about that. But let me tell you something, Elaine. What was really interesting more is this. Brito, about the same time, said, Tony, I need you to take over waste. You know, I talked to you about the brewer spent yeah. yeast and brewer spent grains. He said, I need you to take that over. And I don't need to tell you why he said that. But he said, Tony, I need you to manage waste. Waste. I said, that's cool. But he never gave me a definition on waste. And, yeah. and Elaine, you've worked with me for a little while. You kind of know. If you don't give me a definition... I'm going to make the definition, and it's going to be pretty broad. And so what my team did in that circular of interest, because that circular of interest kind of spun out of, of sustainability, was to look and say anything that's not fully utilized, right? Not yeah. totally utilized or is wasted. And so that's why you'll find out in the near future about BioBrew. And you need to go interview Patrick Aryden. Go talk to Patrick. I think he's going to blow your way. But the potential to brew the future yeah. is something for us in the beginning. And why does that come up is, well, if you look at our breweries around the world, Pete Kramer can tell you, we're not fully utilized on the fermentation side. 
Okay. It might, we might be fully utilized in packaging, but not on the fermentation. So how do you take that excess fermentation and do something special with it? That's where the circularity kicks in. That's where sustainability makes the procurement people so happy. And by the way, one last thing, we've proven it to everybody that will talk to us. If you bring sustainability into procurement, it causes everything to cost less. All right. So let me just play that for you. Elaine, think about this. A can that has recycled material in it, it's going to cost less. A bottle with recycled materials in it, it's going to cost less. Why? It takes a lot less energy to melt that glass down to make a new bottle. It takes a lot less energy to make a new can on a can sheet through melting a used can. All these things, renewable electricity, we're we're about 80% under contract. We're approaching 80% by the end of this year. Think about that. Every bit of electricity that's renewable is costing less than what the original carbon-based grid price is. So almost everything that we're doing costs less because of sustainability. Well, I cannot wait to uh, speak to Patrick as well, a little bit more about BioBrew. I know the listeners are going to be really intrigued to find out more about that. And equally, I'm sure we'll have lots of opportunities to have you back on the show, Tony. But before you go, do you have a leadership lesson that you have, something that you really found helpful, especially navigating during COVID-19? Well, I guess there's a few things. I learned this, Elaine. I learned that habits take about three weeks to break. As most people know, I was doing about 50 international trips a year. Then once the COVID kicked in, I had to learn how to change my whole routine and all that. So the the tactical one is it takes about three weeks to break a habit. I'd say on the, the top end part is this. I know that when the COVID kicked in and people are staying at home, we're not together as much to have those 30-second conversations in the hall or having lunch together or getting a beer afterwards. But I've got to tell you, I've become much more efficient and effective using Zoom. So right now, my meetings are going down to 30 minutes. I mean, I don't have hour meetings anymore. I have half-hour meetings. I have 15-minute breaks in between. I started, say, at 7 a.m. and I finish up around 7.30, 8 p.m. at night. I got to tell you, I'm getting more done now than I did when I was traveling into the different regions of the world and being face-to-face. Now the part will be is once this kind of lifts up, and I've had my two shots, I'm pretty happy about it, is that how am I going to make effective and efficiency changes in my way of doing work, and how is that going to work with other people? I think that's going to be the transitional thing. And then I'd say the last thing is this. The, the big one would be, hey, you got to dream big. I mean, this company is massive. If you think about it, we're yeah. a 50 plus billion dollar company. We need people not to be thinking tactically and transactionally. We need to really start stretching ourselves even further. And just because you're given a problem doesn't mean that you focus just on that problem. You've got to need to look and see how many standard deviations away of opportunity there are. And the most amazing thing that's happened in this year is, hey, the 100 plus, you know, the dream was to get us started. Now it's a standard deviation even bigger because we added four CPGs. We're probably going to add at least four to six, maybe next year. And then how does that kind of play on out around the world? These are things that you start off small, but if you dream big, you can make really massive changes. And so that's the one takeaway, the big takeaway I've had for the year. Tony, uh, this has been a great discussion and I love all of the ambition that you and your team have, even the being better together and really the disruption and all of the impacts that each of these, you know, the small 
businesses have had, the entrepreneurs, a lot to be said for making the world a better place. Tony, I can't wait to have you back on the show and I know the listeners will be feeling the same, but thanks for joining us. And Elaine, you're going to have two fantastic people. I just mentioned Patrick Ryden, but you're going to have Greg Bell. Those two are going to be fantastic. I can't wait to hear both of them talk to you. Thanks, Tony. I'm very pleased to introduce to you Peter Lacey, Chief Responsibility Officer and Global Sustainability Services Lead at Accenture. Peter, welcome to the show. Thank you very much indeed for having me. It's just really great to meet again. I was actually thinking back when the last time was that we met. And believe it or not, it was actually at the Circulars Awards in Davos, which is now quite a long time ago. Do you believe it? We had five good years of the circulars and now it's evolved into the circular accelerators. So I'm still going strong in some form or another. So tell us about the circular accelerator then. That's amazing. Well, it's a natural evolution, I think. So we, as you know, you were part of the journey. We had a fantastic five years with the circulars. The aim of the circulars was always to celebrate the positive innovation taking place in business, uh, as well as in the end in, with investors and governments. So we broadened it out and businesses, both large and small, that were looking to scale circular economy at speed and had that disruptive potential and to celebrate them, to showcase them, to give them new connections. But after five years, you know, I have a bit of a thing, maybe it's a personal thing, but I always think you try, try and leave the crowd wanting more. And that you should also be very careful not to create institutions when you meant great momentum. And so what we did was after five years, even though there was a really, really strong demand for us to carry on, we said, no, we had five years of that phase and era. Now it's time for a new phase. And the new era was to build on the community that we've mobilized, build on some of the innovation and some of the networks that have been created, but to now deploy it in real world situations. So the circular accelerators, if you like, depending on which country you're from, you know, you're familiar with shark tanks or you're familiar with dragon fens or whatever it is. But it really is that concept of large multinational companies coming together with small innovative disruptors, identifying those with huge potential and connecting them to their canvas to paint on, if you like. So you got to get the disruptors who get connected with big multinational global supply chains, enterprises, where they can deploy their solution and work in partnership. And that's really the idea of the circular accelerators. And this time around, as we evolved the model, we went from the 1,500 case studies we already had from the circulars, the 200 applicants, we got it down to 17 with five companies working with us. And it's been really, really successful again. Yeah, that sounds very similar. In fact, for our listeners, they'll know of our 100 plus accelerator. So very similar to that as well. There's may have even been some good co-innovation of thinking around there as well. It sounds like it. So I know our listeners will also know, Peter, that you're the author of the Circular Economy Handbook. And that oh. in that book, you talk about the circular economy really being the blueprint for recovery. And I mean, especially where we are right now with the pandemic, is this still the case? And what are the new challenges that's posed by the last year? I think that it is still the case that actually as we build back better, so you hear that term a lot. Uh, You hear it from the Biden administration, you hear it from Ursula von der Leyen and the European Commission and the European Commission stimulus packages. You even hear it in different forms from Xi Jinping in China, although perhaps they haven't had some of the loads that we've seen in some of the Western economies. 
you know, incredibly ambitious goals coming off of the back of some of the damage that's been done to their economies and to their societies as well. Uh, 20, you know, 30, 50% decarbonization, 20, 60, 100% decarbonization. We're really seeing a global mm-hmm. convergence around the need to have sustainability at the heart of the building back better process. And I think as the North Star for the decade ahead of us, And circular economy is a solution that touches on so many different parts of the sustainable development goals. And so I think as a way of thinking about markets and a way of thinking about business innovation and disruption, it's a great connector. Now, when you think about the 17 SDGs that I always kind of keep behind me just to keep us all honest, it touches on almost all of those 17 SDGs in different ways. It's not a panacea. It doesn't cover every social issue, but as an integrated environmental way of thinking about the world that also, I think, benefits jobs, benefits social issues. It's a very, very powerful concept. And just speaking very, very pragmatically, it's a $4.5 trillion or more uh, relatively conservative estimates, $4.5 trillion economic opportunity for business. Wow. So as well as being the right thing from a policy perspective and a society perspective, I think the bit that is the way to see circular economy yeah. and the SDGs is almost the roadmap for innovation for the next decade. Yeah. And you talk about SDGs. And for our listeners, of course, you're referring to the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals, which actually are often my backdrop on Zoom. So I know all the listeners and colleagues will know how passionate I am about the UN SDGs as well. But that's an enormous scale in terms of really the challenge of what needs to be done. So what are the next steps really for businesses and governments Well, I certainly know that. And I know that you guys have been pioneering this for a number of years. It's been a pleasure to partner with you on some of those initiatives. And I don't know how personally passionate you are and Tony and others. Just go directly to your question. As we think about how to drive sustainability to scale at speed, which is really the name of the game, and how to use that in ways that improve competitiveness, don't detract from them at the level of countries, the level of regions, the level of companies. I think there are some fundamentals. One fundamental is that we need to rewire the global economy. So we need to rewire it at every level so that governments are held to account not just for GDP and growth and jobs, but of the SDGs. Actually, they sit nicely and neatly alongside Mm. each other as a holistic way to look at rewiring the global economy for real performance. That's true at the business level. So we need to have the data, the management information, the ability to communicate effectively with capital markets, with external stakeholders, but also for boards, CEOs, CFOs to manage to a broader agenda, a shareholder value creation and stakeholder or sustainability impact perspective that can be measured, that can be quantified. And then to kind of just taking it down another level, we need to retool the organization from top to bottom to be able to measure for that. So even if you're sat in a procurement function and you're managing a specific category, right? You know, in your case, you know, I don't know, well, let's give it a generic one. It's pencils, right? But you are, if you're buying pencils, you still need to be able to understand not just cost, quality and availability. Now you need to understand sustainability. So if I change my supplier or I change the spectrum of suppliers that I'm I'm using, how I drive the cost down, what impact is that going to have on carbon? What impact is it going to have on business and human rights? What, from a circular economy perspective, I can't just think about carbon. I have to think about carbon, energy, water, waste, materials, biodiversity. And unfortunately, it's as difficult as that and as easy as that, but we need to rewire the global economy. That's the first thing. I think the second thing is that we need policy and regulatory measures that create pricing signals about what we care about, what we value as societies, that create a level playing field. 
Now, I don't hear good businesses who are anti-regulation, anti-policy. They just want the boundary conditions that allow us to compete in ways that is really competing towards the top, not the bottom. And that, that there's fairness. I mean, that is everything from carbon pricing to the flow and movement of plastics and waste around the world, right? That we're not seeing free rider effects, that we're not seeing dumping or leaking of value and leaking of sustainability from one country to another. And I think the final piece for me is it is about viewing sustainability from a business leadership perspective as an innovation agenda, as a growth agenda on the front yeah. front, new market products, new services, new ways of differentiating with consumers, customers, employees, not cost, risk, downside mitigation. All those are all true. They're all real. But to really make markets work, to make strategy work, to make businesses work, it has to be a front foot innovation agenda in my view. Yeah, sounds like a lot of systems-based thinking and innovation and disruption in order to be able to get to where we need to, especially to reach those United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. So then if we think about the recovery, how do we make sure sustainability still stays at the top of the agenda and that we don't somehow fall back? It's a great question. It's one I get asked a lot. We're just kicking off the latest version of a study we've done every three years. I've done now for, for nearly 15 years with the UN Global Compact, which I know you, you guys are uh, familiar with. Yeah. So it's a CEO study. It's, we, we do about 1,000 CEO online responses. And I tend to do about 80 to 100 one-to-ones. It's one of the most fascinating discussions I have every few years and a real privilege to have that conversation. And I would say it's one of the things that's coming up a lot. You know, what's the level of interest? Has it gone down? Has it been trumped by the need to short-term necessity of just focusing on survival in the pandemic or just focusing on safeguarding our own employees? You know, and the answer to the question is that, first of all, to start responding to the question, I think the, first of all, I haven't seen the level of interest, the level of commitment, the level of focus on the topic just go down in any sense. And so what do I mean by that? One, policymakers and regulators we've already talked about, they're integrating this into stimulus packages. The, the goals are ratcheting up, not down. Right? I mean, every week we see that. And that this hasn't disappeared off the mainstream yeah. media agenda. It's absolutely there. And I don't think it's disappeared off the business agenda. And I think, if anything, it's made people realize how fragile global value chains are and how resilience and the integration of resilience and sustainability is front and center. And even if you you do or you don't believe that some of the reason for the pandemic itself was also our relationship with nature and and how that's infringed and and some of the blurring of the boundaries in those contexts, even if you don't buy that, right, you, you, I think, cannot fail to see the importance of sustainability and resilience and using this, you know, the, the, the phrase of never wasting a good crisis to rethink, to your point, that's holistic systems and how they work to support our societies and how business plays a role in that. So I think the answer is that we haven't seen it disappear off the agenda. If anything, it's doubling down on that set of imperatives. And I think that we need to make sure that we do learn some of the lessons and apply them to ensuring that we future-proof our economies and our businesses. Great. And then what are the most innovative solutions then that you've seen towards a circular economy? Well, it's hard to pick favourites. I'm not sure it's quite as difficult, but it's sort of, you know, I've got three kids and I'm not sure I know which my favourite is, but it depends on the day mostly. (laughs) But it's fair to say that that there are some great examples out there. So the first answer to your question is a slight plug for go and look at thecirculars.org where we have worked tirelessly over the last five, six years with you guys, with others, to document more than a 1,000 case studies. So first of all, go and have a look there. If I was going to pick a couple that are really taking bold steps and walking the talk, 
in areas like sustainability, supply chain, circular economy. I mean, you guys are using yeah, so many examples. You, you guys are doing sustainable supply chain projects in the AB InBev approach using blockchain technologies and so those things around consumers and, and connecting back to farms. But without picking ourselves up either side, Accenture or AB InBev, some of the other examples out there, laying technologies, you know, is a great yeah. example of employing resource recovery and circular supply models by recovering valuable raw material from end-of-life tires and using that material to create sustainable feedstock for manufacturers of new tires. So integrating that back into the supply chain. And to date, it's manufactured over 500 million tires, 500 million tires using recovered, recycled, reused rubber and other materials in the tires. To take the investment world, Impact's asset management through its environmental markets classification system has actually identified 1,600 listed companies that provide environmental solutions, including circular economy business models. And Impacts has literally has been behind creating a whole new asset class or a whole new lens and way of looking at financial markets by providing others and white goods services to other markets and indices to allow people to start to differentiate between good and bad performance on sustainability and capital markets. Or a third example, going into more the industrial equipment perspective and the built environment engineering, Schneider Electric has led the transformation of energy management and automation. And so if you look at its programs on assisted buildings, industries, electricity grids, data centers, it's been driving down and decoupling the utilization of that by its customers from circular economy impact. So a 12% now of Schneider's overall portfolio is circular economy products and services. And they've reduced 100,000 tons, if I got my numbers right, 100,000 tons of primary resource consumption has already been retrofitted, refurbished, and taken back through 2018 to 2020, just already. And that portfolio is growing far faster than the rest of Schneider's portfolio. So three good examples there of disruptive innovator, lead technology, smaller business now scaled, Schneider established business pivoting its business model, impacts asset management, capital markets, investors, now really start to come up with innovation in that space and that world. Thank you for those examples. Really inspiring. And I know our listeners will definitely be checking those out to get a bit more detail and also your circulars.org. Before you leave, one final question. You've been through quite a lot this past 12, 18 months. Tell us a little bit more about maybe a leadership lesson that you have. What have you learned during this challenging time from a leadership perspective? That's a really good question. I'd give you two to finish. One on the sustainability agenda is that timing is everything. My first sustainability project personally was 24 years ago, working on a volcano in Costa Rica for the uh, electricity utility there on geothermal energy. So I'm neither a spring chicken nor new to sustainability, but timing is everything. And sometimes you you just have to be patient. Right. Now, that's not necessarily an intuitive one, because actually, I think a lot of us, you know, kind of hear constant drumbeats of, you know, we must push this, we must force the agenda. Now, timing is everything. And I think now the timing is right for the first time in my career that sustainability is going to reshape markets. And you're either going to be a winner or a loser in that. And I think it's there's some, some companies have been on a journey for longer than others, but it's not too late, but it will be very quickly. So one of my lessons learned is that timing is everything. And you better understand that that's real now for this next decade, if you want to be a competitive enterprise, if you want to be a successful business leader. I think the other thing that I have learned during this pandemic, and it's even in recent times, so 
as well as having the sustainability services agenda, so all the work we do for our clients and with our partners, we have Accenture's own agenda. So 540,000 people across 110 different offices and markets around the world. And some of those offices have been unbelievably hard impacted by the COVID pandemic itself. Places like India, the Philippines, Brazil, where we have huge teams and businesses and huge teams, hundreds of thousands of people. And I think what I have learned, and it's a hard lesson because it's a human tragedy, right? But it is that the enormous passion of our people needs to also be coupled with innovative ways and means for them to step up, like, for example, employee matching and engagement, like, for example, finding ways and means to support, you know, in new and more innovative ways that kind of blur the boundaries of public, private, NGO, and so on. You know, when needs must, we need just to collaborate across sectors. And we just need to get the job done. And everyone can bring something to that table. Governments, international organizations, NGOs, business, and business needs to step up. And so that's, you know, I would say for me, I've always been more focused on the kind of commercial side of things. But there's a time and a place for, you know, I think for altruism, for philanthropy, for collaboration and innovating that as much as innovating business and markets. And sometimes we need to be able to do both. Yes, um, very kind of tough lesson for everyone there, but it definitely resonates certainly from my side, but I'm sure it does with all our listeners too. Peter, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much. I'm excited now to introduce you to Greg Bell, the Chief Executive Officer and Founder of Evergreen. Greg, welcome to the show. Thank you, Elaine. It's a pleasure to be here. So give us an overview of Evergreen and how it's come about. Yeah, sure. So Evergreen is a sustainable ingredients company owned by uh, AB InBev. And in short, what Evergreen does is we make plant-based products better. And we do that in three ways. We make them taste better, we make them healthier, and we make them more sustainable. And we do that in a unique way. We repurpose nutrients that are left over from uh, the beer brewing process. We save those grains and transform them into uh, world-class ingredients. And yeah, we've been doing this uh, for quite a bit of time, originating out of AB InBev's global R&D unit in Leuven, Belgium. Well, I haven't told you before, Greg, but I actually do know quite how nutritious those products are. My very, very, very first job was actually analyzing the content, the protein content and the fiber content of those grains so that we knew what the farmers were going to be buying. And the farmers were very intrigued originally for those materials. Can you tell us a little bit more about, you know, quite how nutritious those are and what they're used for? Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, Elaine, I'm glad you share that experience because that is similar to the experience that I had and how Evergreen got started. I was working on a small team in Leuven, Belgium, and we were watching barley go into a brewery and we were watching barley leave the brewery. And we started asking ourselves, why is that the case? And uh, you ask questions like, you know, what are those nutrients in barley? And then you hear like things like, wow, it actually contains 30% protein. And it's a really, really high quality protein, as well as a great source of fiber. Barley fiber contains a unique type of fiber called Abrino's Island, which is a prebiotic. And what Evergreen does is we're able to capture those nutrients and save them and transform them into ingredients that make plant-based products taste better and healthier. 
Amazing. And especially with plant-based diets being such a trend. Tell us a little bit more about these ingredients and the products and how they're being used. Yeah, absolutely. So Evergreen has two major products. One is a high protein ingredient, very conducive to plant-based milks, shakes, as well as protein bars. And uh, barley's uh, neutral taste and high quality enables, like, for example, a plant-based milk to have an unbelievable taste, but the same nutrition as a dairy milk. And then our second product is a nutritional flour, which goes into breads and pastas. And it makes products like that healthier because we're adding protein, we're adding fiber in a product that is typically high in starch or high in carbohydrates. So for those who like perhaps uh, to enjoy their breads and their pastas, but without the starch, it's ideal. So I know everyone is wanting to know where can they buy these products or what products can they look out for so that they know that they're buying Evergreen? Yeah, absolutely. Yep. So uh, Nestle Garden of Life is launching a barley protein product, one of the most sustainable protein ready to mix powders in the summertime. You can also pick up the best tasting plant-based milk in the world from a company called Take Two on the West Coast of the U.S. Sounds good. I am absolutely going to be looking out for those. I can't wait to try them all. What have been some of the challenges in developing this circular solution? I think, Elaine, great question. I think the first thing is just a frame of mind, right? And when we started this journey back in 2013, there were many people that said, you know, Greg, Greg and team, Barley protein and barley nutrients aren't any good. It's spent. And even the industry calls it brewer's spent grain. And that spent is a misnomer, yeah. um, as, as we talked about. And so I think the first thing is that frame of mind, which is you know really realizing the potential in everything, really realizing the potential in what the world has to offer. I think the second challenge came down to, once we overcame that hurdle, the second challenge came down to some technical challenges. And we partnered with the University of Cork in Ireland to really attack some of those technical challenges. And with a lot of hard work and a little bit of time, we were able to overcome those. Okay, so Greg, tell us a little bit more about what was brewer's grains being used as animal feed and now being part of these amazing ingredients. Talk a little bit more about that process. Yeah, absolutely. It really dates back to working on a small team in Leuven, Belgium, where our office is actually overlooking the brewery and it's home to Stella Artois. And we're watching barley go into the brewery, the brewers removing the starch, and then we're watching barley leave the brewery. And when it leaves the brewery, it's sometimes shipped hundreds of kilometers to dairy farms where it serves as a great source of nutrition for cows. And that's great. But, you know, the question that we asked is, is that optimal, right? Can we capture those nutrients? It's such a great source of nutrients. Can we capture that and deliver that directly to the consumer? And when you think about you know, the greater picture, the world has limits in terms of how many plant proteins and plant fibers can be scaled at a global level. And at EB InBev, we have over 1.4 million metric tons of what we call the golden remainder, what the industry calls spent grain. But the world has over 9 million metric tons. Wow. So by capturing these nutrients, saving them and returning them directly to the consumer, we can impact billions of people. That sounds great. And then what was important to address sustainability through food? Can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, absolutely. So the main driver really behind this was really an effort to improve the world. 
So you read statistics like that food systems account for over one third of the world's greenhouse gas emissions, that in the U.S., 30 to 40 percent of the food supply is wasted. And as we were watching Barley go into a brewery and Barley leaving a brewery, we said, like, why are we not capturing everything? So that was really the motivation or the ambition behind Evergreen. And when we're able to capture our ingredients and incorporate them into leading consumer products, we're seeing a 40 to 80 percent lower greenhouse gas emissions in those products. Right. We're seeing healthier products. So we think it's a very special opportunity to impact the world and impact the food supply chain. It's just huge potential here. So what's the future plans for scaling Evergreen? In March, we announced our large-scale facility in St. Louis, where we'll be making our high-protein ingredient, EverPro, and future announcements to come in Europe and elsewhere as we scale globally. We'll have to get you back on the show to talk more when you can. That sounds very intriguing. I just loved what you said around, you know, just seeing the potential and everything. And you know, I think there's a lot to be said about seeing the potential in everyone as well. And can you tell us about your, you know, your leadership tip and what's really helped you navigate? This is a brand new business and leading a brand new business in a pandemic can't be easy. So what tip can you share with our listeners? I think perhaps one of the things that like realizing the potential in everything as well as everyone, I think one of the things that makes Evergreen so special is the collaboration. Evergreen consists of approximately 40 people across a number of different countries, a number of different backgrounds from marketing to food scientists to engineers. And we also work very, very closely with external partners like the University of Cork in Ireland and other firms as well. And I think particularly in a challenging time like COVID, I think collaboration and diversity of thought is the key. Yeah, that's what I think makes Evergreen special. So, Greg, this has been so intriguing. And as you've mentioned, you know, we all need to be looking at the potential in everything and everyone. Thank you so much for joining us on the show. Yeah, thank you, Elaine. It's a pleasure to be here. You've been listening to Talking on Tap, a podcast series from ABM Bev. I'm your host, Elaine McCrimmon, and we've been talking to Tony Milliken, our Chief Procurement Sustainability and Circular Ventures Officer, Peter Lacey, the Chief Responsibility Officer and Global Sustainability Services Lead at Accenture, and Greg Belt, the Chief Executive Officer and Founder of Evergreen. If you'd like to learn more about the subjects we've been discussing, you can visit our website, ab-inbev.com, where you'll find some links and information about our guests and the initiatives that we've been discussing on Talking on Tap. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and anywhere else you listen to your favorite podcasts. If you've enjoyed this series, then please subscribe, rate, and review us. And if you think others will enjoy it too, please share with your family, friends, and colleagues. Thanks for joining us. We are AB InBev. This is Margot Miller from the AB InBev legal team. This podcast was recorded and is being made available by AB InBev solely for informational purposes and is general in nature. The information, statements, comments, views, and opinions expressed or provided in this podcast, including by speakers who are not officers, employees, or agents of AB InBev, are not necessarily those of AB InBev and may not be current. AB InBev does not make any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of any of the content contained in this podcast. 
and any liability, therefore, is expressly disclaimed. Certain of the statements may have been forward-looking in nature and based on the current expectations and views of future events and developments of the speakers and are naturally subject to uncertainty and changes in circumstances. AB InBev does not undertake any obligation to provide any form of update, amendment, change, or correction to any of the information, statements, comments, views, or opinions set forth in this podcast.